Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show attorney Ken Phillips. He's a California-based lawyer, and Ken is a nationally acclaimed expert in personal injury law related to dogs and dog bites. In fact, his website is dogbitelaw.com. But beyond that, Ken has a deep interest in many aspects of dogs in our society, in our customs, in legislation, and a lot more. So welcome back, Ken. Hi, Peter. Great to be back. Okay, so I just want to take a second and remind listeners or maybe point out for the first time two segments you did on the show a few years ago that were especially well-received, and they were on dog park etiquette and the hidden hazards in dog parks. And, you know, people are still discovering this show, and they really appreciate your comments on that topic, and that's up on AnimalsTodayRadio.com. So thank you very much. That show is really attracting new listeners. I'm really glad about that because that, that is an issue. People have, uh, they, they need to be able to walk their dogs and, and exercise their dogs, and they need to be able to do it safely and in a sanitary environment. So that, I, that's great. I'm glad. Yeah, so many, so many issues. So everyone go back and listen to that if you haven't heard that. But for today, you brought to our attention changes in, in policy or law requiring shelters to make more complete disclosures about the dogs they offer for adoption. And that opens up a whole interesting discussion. So why don't you please explain, uh, lay it out for us. Well, we're talking about what what are referred to as shelter dogs, namely the dogs that are brought to the, the animal shelters and then offered for adoption. In the last few years, there have been problems with shelter dogs. Shelter dogs killed seven of the 36 Americans who were killed by dogs in 2018. Hmm. Shelters and rescues have been caught releasing dangerous dogs to the public. It has been learned that they routinely have lied to families about the bite history of dogs. At least one shelter manager in this country has been criminally prosecuted for rehoming known vicious dogs. Mm. So, so what started out as going to the pound and finding a, a, a nice furry companion has become a problem for people because you don't know whether you can trust what you're hearing. So this was all made worse uh, by a number of cities, including Los Angeles, but all over the country, another number of cities that adopted policies for their shelters, stating that the shelter was not to disclose the history of the dog or the breed of the dog. In other words, to conceal the history of the dog from good-natured people that are coming to, to pick up, you know, a dog for their kids. And why would they adopt a policy like that? Because the because the shelters are overflowing with with dogs basically. Shelters are overflowing with them. It's become a a big problem. They're overflowing with them for two reasons. One reason being that uh, there are uh, there are too many pit bulls that are being bred. Uh, the, the pit bull population has to be thinned out every single year. About a third of all pit bulls have to be euthanized every single year because people are overproducing them. So that's one reason. And then probably the main reason is the no-kill movement. Yeah. The no-kill movement is a is a movement that says if, if an animal can be saved and, or, can, or can be adopted, 
the animal should not be euthanized simply because it's, you know, five days have gone by or 10 days have gone by with it being at the shelter. The, but the unintended consequence of the, un, the no-kill policies is that the, the shelters are overwhelmed with, especially with dogs. And so the, one of the misguided solutions has been to push dogs on, on people without uh, giving the proper warnings. And so what we've had is this, is this uh, what turned out as, you know, something that where the, where the intentions were good has turned into kind of a nightmare uh, for many people where, they're, where they've been injured by dogs that they've adopted. I, in my law practice, you know, my law practice centers on representing the victims of, of dog attacks and, and families where somebody in the family has been killed by a dog. That's, that's, that's what I do for a living, so to speak. I've been getting so many inquiries from people. It's every other day, somebody somewhere says, I adopted this dog from a shelter and two days later, look what it's done. It is. It has killed my other dog. It has attacked my child. I'm in the hospital right now. That kind of thing. And you're saying so this, has become, and, this has become a problem. And you're saying that the shelter or the employees at the shelter, even trickling down to the lowest level dog handlers, they they know or they have incentives that or regulations that prevent them from disclosing facts. That's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly it. That those are the those are the official policies of many shelters. So what now, to do? Po- so okay, you're right. I was going to get to that. The, the the positive side of this is that there are two states that have now mandated giving the bite history of a of a dog to somebody who wants to adopt the dog. The bite history. Mm-hmm. And those two states are California and Virginia. Both of these states now have laws. They've recognized the problem that I described to you. The legislatures have molded over. They know how bad it is. They know that what I've been telling you is what is going on. And so what they've done in California and in Virginia is that they have passed laws that require giving the bite history of a dog to somebody who's interested in adopting the dog. And this applies to to every everybody who adopts out a dog, whether it's a government shelter, an animal control department, whether it's the, the, the rescue group uh, in your community, the nonprofit, you know, yeah. the, the group of people that, that are, are, are doing it who are loosely organized. Everybody has to give the bite history. So how is that determined? How do you know what the history is? Uh, is it what's been reported? I mean, maybe there's, it seems to be almost impossible to really know the truth here. Right. What you have to pass along is what you have heard about the dog. Heard about. So in other words, you're not, you're not under a legal obligation to do what I do in my cases, which is have a, a private investigator go out and, you know, look under rocks. Yeah. To find out the history of a dog that that you don't have to do. You don't have to ask the kids in the neighborhood. You don't have to ask the postman, which are things that we do normally in my law practice when we're trying to find the history of a dog. We've got about 30, 40 things that we do to determine the history of a dog. They don't have to do that. But what they do have to do is if that dog has bit somebody in the shelter, they got to tell you. 
if if when the dog was brought in, it was brought in by somebody that says, I, I can't handle this dog anymore because it, it, it just, you know, it nipped the postman. Yeah. They have to report that. Yeah. How about the flip side? What if you've got someone who needs to turn a dog in and uh, the dog has bitten some people, but it's not disclosed. So you've got uh, the other risk on that side. If, if a person turns in a dog and they don't disclose the history of the dog, first of all, I think that that's immoral to do that. I think that that's, that is really terrible. And, I, and honestly, I feel that, that if you're passing along, it's almost like passing along a, a loaded weapon to somebody in a way. If you know that the animal is vicious, you should say something. Uh, I don't know of any uh, criminal law that that would violate. And I would say that it definitely uh, would be a, a civil cause of action. In other words, if you give a dog to somebody and you know the dog is vicious and, and it's just you giving it to somebody and you don't alert them to the to the dangers presented by that by that dog, that would be an a an actionable cause of action in a civil sense. Yeah. I don't know of any criminal laws that that would uh, that would apply to that. Hey Ken, hi, it's Lori here. I think I object to how we're using the term vicious. You said if you know the dog is vicious, you should say something. But just because a dog bites doesn't mean a dog is vicious, right? Can I? I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Okay. Yes. To to me, vicious means it's an unjustified bite. There are justified bites, certainly, but I'm talking about a dog that has temperament that it doesn't like people. Yeah. Now I'll give the seat back to Peter. <laughs> Thanks for letting me interrupt. Pleasure to talk to you, always. Elbowed me in the ribs. <laughs> yeah. Ice pack. Yeah, but was it justified or was it provoked or what was? <laughs> I know. I know. Are the laws you mentioned in uh, California, and I think you said Virginia, right? Um, yes. Are they in place right now, and do we have any uh, feeling about how they're working? Well, the, the Virginia law is, I think, a year or two old, and the California law just came into effect. Yeah. So I don't know how it's working. I simply pray that it will work. The person you mentioned er- earlier who was criminally prosecuted, an employee, what do you know about that? That's a crazy story. Well, this was... This was Lori Hollywood, who was the uh, the animal shelter manager in a city called Stamford, uh, Connecticut. Yeah. And in uh, in uh, 2014, she was suspended, and then she was fired after a, a police investigation that uh, that dealt with her adopting out several dogs that were vicious without disclosing that they were vicious. And, and in each of those cases, somebody was injured. Yeah. The person who adopted the dog was injured. So that, that's something that, that occurred several years ago. And right after the break, we'll continue our discussion with attorney Ken Phillips. You're listening to Animals Today. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. 
Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it's important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back. We are speaking with attorney Ken Phillips. Ken, are we going to see more states adopt policies and pass laws requiring more disclosure about dogs' histories when they are up for adoption? I would think so because because you you have you have California, which is which passes a lot of laws. Half of them good, half of them bad, <laughs> but gets a lot of <laughs> gets a lot of attention for the laws that it passes and is in, considered to be influential. Uh, and then you have a more conservative state like Virginia doing it. I, and I think that this is a problem that has gotten a whole lot of attention among among those of us who are following issues having to do with dogs and the law. Yeah. So I, I, I do think that, that there will be more uh, legislation in other jurisdictions about this in the very near future. Because, because look, it, it does nothing but strengthen the the whole system of saving the lives of animals in shelters think about it if you're afraid of going to the shelter because you're afraid of being lied to you're not going to go to the shelter you're not going to get a dog you're not going to get a cat from the shelter it's real the problem is really with dogs so you're not going to go so the public has to have confidence and faith in in the shelters to not do the wrong thing so Something like this is, I think, all in all, it's a beneficial thing. So I would, I would hope that there would be more laws. I would hope that the lying uh, and the, the misrepresentations, the concealments will stop. And I hope that people will continue going to shelters and adopting, and adopting good dogs from shelters. Ken, let me get you to comment on a real story. I know a situation where a mother relinquished a dog to the shelter and tells the shelter workers that the dog bit her child, but also admitted the dog was provoked by her eight-year-old hyperactive child who's on medication for ADHD, and he was tugging on the ears and pulling the tail. So her point was that the dog is not vicious. This is a good dog, she said. He was provoked, and she stressed to the shelter workers that this dog should not be euthanized or killed. It's a good dog. Well, the shelter's policy is that when a dog bites, for whatever reason... If the dog has a bite history, the dog is deemed vicious and is thus euthanized. Therefore, this good, potentially adoptable dog was killed by the shelter. What do you think about that? Well, I think that, the, that I have a number of thoughts about that. First of all, when, when somebody brings a dog back and says that it, it bit, but it was provoked, I think the, the shelter is on notice that the dog needs to be temperament tested and, and observed because we don't know whether the dog owner is a good reporter of the truth about their dog. A lot of people, even though their dog bites somebody, they will not face 
the truth that the dog is a bad dog, meaning bad for other people, because the dog has been good for them. And they think of the dog as being a family member who was maybe trying to protect them. So I think that in the, in that situation, the the dog has to be temperament tested because the shelter knows that whatever happened, this dog owner doesn't trust the dog under some circumstances. And they have to determine whether what they what to tell other people because they don't want this to happen again. Now, in, in the situation that you described, the way you described it seems totally unfair to the animal. If 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 the dog was put down simply because uh, if somebody checked the box and said it bit, and, right. and there was no further inquiry right. as to whether it was justified. There are justified bites. There has been a study of, uh, of provocation in, as the law, as the law uh, defines provocation, meaning the law defines provocation of a dog as something that is uh, sufficient to that would be similar to self-defense in a person. In other words, if a, if the dog has been uh, provoked in such a way that the dog really should respond like you'd respond in self-defense, that's the law says that's okay. Right. That's a justified bite. So, you know, there, there needs to be a differentiation. But there has been a study of that, and the study concluded that only 6% of the time where the bites actually justified in that uh, along those lines. Oh, I don't believe that. Of the time. I don't believe that. Well, your experience might be different. Just talking about a study. And, and you know, that that's something we can talk about a little more some other time. Uh, the whole business, because that because, Lori, that that topic is the topic of what is a dangerous dog. And that one that you just told me was a really tough one. Yeah, that's I know. really tough. Because it, it, you know, because it, it, it just seems like a big mistake. I mean, the way you described it, it just seems like a big mistake. Can remind people how they can find you. Well, I am easy to find because I'm all over the internet. So, dogbitelaw.com is how you reach me. Okay, Ken, Lori, comments from the peanut gallery. <laughs> Watch out, the elbows. <laughs> Here come the elbows. <laughs> Ken Phillips, thanks for coming back, and we look forward to speaking to you soon. And likewise. Take care, Peter. Good talking to you guys. You're listening to Animals Today. If you're like most people, you have lots of plans. A financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of them get euthanized. Some people don't give the future a thought. Others assume family members will care for their pets. A better way is to name caregivers and provide detailed instructions about your pet's feeding, social, play, and health care needs.
needs. But even designated caregivers can't guarantee your pet will join a stable and loving home. Good intentions sometimes take a backseat to life's realities, like a new spouse who doesn't like animals, a sudden desire to travel the world, or the adoptive caregiver's own illness. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. In an effort to encourage safe, pet-friendly car rides, PetSafe recently announced a car safety harness replacement program. If your dog is wearing a harness of any brand during a vehicle accident, PetSafe will replace it with a crash test certified Happy Ride safety harness free. While a harness may not display visible damage after an accident, PetSafe recommends replacing it regardless to ensure maximum strength in the event of another accident. It also improves safety for everyone in the car as it restricts dogs from moving around and distracting the driver. PetSafe also carries a multitude of other products in addition to harnesses to make car traveling safe and easy, like barriers, ramps, and booster seats. For example, we recently tested and continue to use the PetSafe Happy Ride Dog Barrier. This barrier is made of a see-through durable mesh that's resistant to damage from pet claws. It prevents pets from inviting themselves into the front seat, which is a good thing. And it's simple to install and uninstall. I did it myself. Two adjustable cinch wraps wrap around the front headrest and a support rod and seat anchors hold the barrier in place. It really works well. Visit PetSafe.com for more information on the new PetSafe car safety harness replacement program and its full product list. If a dog has bitten a person and the animal shelter in California is aware of this information, then the shelter must disclose this knowledge prior to allowing someone to adopt the dog. This is California's new dog bite law. Here are my thoughts about this and my reaction to the prior discussion we had with legal dog bite expert Ken Phillips. Dogs bite. Just because a dog has bitten someone doesn't necessarily mean that dog is vicious or a bad dog or a reason to destroy that dog. Dogs bite when they're protecting their property. Dogs bite trying to protect their owner. They can bite trying to protect themselves or their food or toys. They might bite when they're harassed or provoked. They can bite when they're frightened or scared. I've been bitten by dogs. I was bitten when I picked up an injured dog in the middle of the road. He was bleeding, he had broken bones, and he was scared and in pain. Is that a justified bite? You bet it was. I was bitten by my own dog when we were caught in a situation where my dog was trying to protect me. An unintended, inadvertent bite, I would call it, but it happens. My nephew was bitten by a dog while he was petting a dog. We later found out that the dog had a severe untreated ear infection, and my nephew touched the dog on his sensitive, painful ear. Does that mean that dog's a bad dog? Should we punish that dog for hurting my nephew? I have a friend whose dog bit a young boy who jumped in the yard to retrieve his basketball. Dog was protecting his property. Do you think that's justified? Should the dog be punished for that? 
Legally speaking, would the dog be punished for that? Well, these are the kinds of questions we can ask Ken Phillips the next time he's on the show. So someone relinquishes their dog to the shelter and says, my dog bites. Now the shelter workers in California have to disclose to any potential adopter that this dog bites. Shelter workers should be honest if he or she knows something about the dog's history. They should disclose what they know. I absolutely agree with that. But is it really fair to the dog to simply say, this dog has bitten someone without disclosing the circumstances behind that bite? I mean, by saying this dog bites, you automatically stigmatize that dog. Some people would indeed equate a dog that bites to a vicious dog. If a shelter worker says to you, okay, before you adopt this dog, legally I need to tell you that this dog has bitten in the past. Most everyone, I would imagine, would not want to adopt that dog. If a shelter worker said to me, this dog has a bite history, I'd say, okay, dogs bite. What's the circumstances behind that bite? They would likely say, I don't know because it's impossible for the truth to be known. But I'm not sure I'd want to adopt that dog either without knowing more information. And you know what happens to that dog? In all likelihood, that dog is deemed unadoptable. And in many U.S. shelters, the dog is destroyed. So, wow, we didn't even know the truth behind the bite. And we didn't even want to give that dog the benefit of the doubt. And yet the dog doesn't have a chance for a home, does he? If I'm told by the school principal that my child punched another kid, I need to know a little more information about what transpired. I don't think my child would just punch a kid for no reason. Was it justified? Maybe my child was being bullied, so he punched the bully. For a shelter to be forced by law to make public that a dog bites without any additional information just seems a little unfair. That's all I'm saying here. And it's impossible for the shelter workers to know the true facts surrounding a dog bite or if the dog even really bit someone. But now in two states, they are forced to pass along and make public any information told to them by anyone about a dog. Say someone relinquishes a dog to a shelter because they say this dog nipped their baby. Now that shelter worker says to a potential adopter, hey, this dog's a baby biter. You know that dog's never going to be adopted. If I heard this, my first thought would be, why is this dog, any dog, allowed to be in close proximity to a baby? And what happened? Who's the owner? And where was the owner? Perhaps this dog is not a good fit for this particular family with a baby. Should this one incident make it so the dog loses all chances of getting into a home and becoming part of someone's family? Should we destroy the dog because all we know is that we heard from someone that this dog nipped a baby? I don't know. Do we destroy dogs for nipping babies regardless of the owner's stupidity and the circumstances that led up to the bite? Another question to ask our legal dog bite lawyer expert, Ken Phillips. Now, from the perspective of the shelter workers... They know if they disclose to a potential adopter that a dog bites, it's very likely the dog will never get adopted. So depending on that shelter's policies, they might automatically deem that dog unadoptable or vicious, and the dog gets killed. I have known 
and I've worked with many shelter staff, and despite what some people think, they don't enjoy killing dogs. Most of the shelter workers and rescue groups I've worked with try really hard to match a particular dog with the right kind of family. And that's the key here, isn't it? With any adoption of a dog or a cat to a new home and family, the shelter workers and rescue groups need to take a good history and interview the potential adopter, which not all shelters do. And Ken Phillips is right when he says there are some shelters that will adopt out any dog to any person who wants that dog. I know a shelter that adopted an energetic, strong, big puppy who grew to be an 80-pound dog to a 91-year-old man who lives alone. You think that 90-year-old, who depends on a cane, by the way, will be able to adequately socialize and exercise the dog and offer the dog the stimulation that a puppy needs? And what will happen when this big, strong, energetic puppy accidentally hurts the man or pulls the man to the ground on a morning walk? Or what happens to the dog when the 91-year-old dies tomorrow? Not so smart of the shelter worker. And very selfish of the man who wanted a puppy. I mean, what the hell was he thinking? So shelters need to ask questions. Do you live alone? Do you have other pets? Do you have kids? How old are your kids? Have you owned a dog before? If so, what happened to that dog? Did you get your prior dogs fixed or vaccinated? If not, why? Can you afford food for the dog? Where are you going to keep the dog? Tied up in the backyard or home all day while you're working? A lot of information about you and your lifestyle need to be known to assist in making a good match. Generally speaking, shelters and rescue groups want you to be happy with the animal you adopt from them. They want you to be happy with your new family member. They want it to be a lifelong loving home for the animal. They don't want you to return the dog back to them because it didn't work out or the dog wasn't the right fit. Every shelter and rescue group should have a dog adoption questionnaire and an an adoption process and spend a little time trying to make a good match. Unfortunately, many of them don't. Recently, Peter and I were walking at the street fair with one of our dogs, Skye. We got Skye from a shelter, and this was not from a no-kill shelter. And she's a pit bull. And yes, our shelters are overwhelmed with pit bulls. The shelter we obtained Sky from, more than 70% of the dogs there were pit bulls or pit bull mixes. Pretty much the rest of the dogs were chihuahuas. So yes, our shelters are overflowing with pits because they're being bred to death, literally. Because we are destroying these particular dogs because there's just too many of them. What a shame. What a shame we breed dogs. What a shame breeders exist. So had we not adopted Skye, she would likely have been killed by the shelter. Anyway, we're at the street fair and we came across a woman with a golden retriever. Oh, they're such nice dogs, aren't they? Much nicer than our vicious pit bulls. Well, this golden retriever was on a leash held by a woman, lunged toward and growled at our Skye. It was obvious the dog wanted to go after Skye. And this woman almost lost hold of her leash when her dog nearly pulled her to the ground when he was lunging. Thankfully, nothing bad happened. This woman scolded her dog and was trying to control him as we quickly scooted in the other direction. And this was a crowded place, so there were many people who observed this incident. And people around us, and we especially, were relieved that what potentially could have been a horrible scene was not. 
Then a few people sort of chuckled and looked at us and made friendly joking comments because to them, it was sort of a funny situation to see that a pit bull was almost attacked by a golden retriever because that's the mindset of most people. The pit bull is the bad dog and the golden is the good dog. So here's another good question to ask Ken. Let's say the golden retriever did get loose from her owner and attacked our dog. Now there's a dog fight and inevitably someone dog, human, someone is going to get hurt. So who's liable for any bodily damage either dog does to someone? And how many ways can the story be told and interpreted? I relinquish Sky back to the shelter, hypothetical here, of course, and I tell the shelter workers, my pit bull dog bit another dog, a golden retriever, but this golden instigated the entire fight. Do you think the shelter will believe my story? Now that shelter in California is legally obligated to tell the bite history of Skye to any potential adopter. Hey, before you adopt this pit bull, I need to tell you he has a bite history. Oh, what happened? A golden retriever bit this dog, so the pit bull bit him back. Will people believe that? Now, let's say the woman with the golden retriever relinquishes her dog to the shelter because the breeder who she purchased the dog from is not going to take that dog back because breeders don't do that. Breeders breed dogs for profit, and the hardworking shelters and rescue groups are the dumping grounds for unwanted dogs that breeders produce. So this woman takes her golden to the shelter and says, my dog was bitten by a pit bull. Aha! Now that's a believable story. How would you define a dangerous dog? Don't go away. We're going to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, it's Lori Kirshner from Animals Today, and here's your Animals Today Minute. Xylitol is a sweetener that is commonly used in sugar-free gum and candy, toothpaste, mouthwash, baked goods, and chewable vitamins. Xylitol is safe for humans, but can be extremely toxic to dogs. Luckily, cats do not seem to be interested in eating foods with xylitol. But in dogs, even small amounts of xylitol can cause hypoglycemia, that's low blood sugar, seizures, liver failure, and even death. The effects can appear as quickly as 10 minutes after ingestion. If your dog has eaten a xylitol-containing item, bring him or her to your veterinarian or emergency animal hospital immediately, even if there's no symptoms yet. He or she should be monitored there for 12 to 24 hours just to be safe. Also, please be aware that some nut butters now have xylitol as an added ingredient, so check your labels. And of course, don't let your dogs get at your chewing gum and mints. These are serious dangers causing the FDA to release a consumer alert on the risks to dogs, which you can read at fda.gov slash consumer. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner with your Animals Today Minute for the day. Hi, this is Dr. Lori, and you're listening to Animals Today. I'm proud to say that Animals Today is now in its 12th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Visit them at aianimals.org. 
And if you like listening to this radio show and you like what we're doing, consider making a donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals to support the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Their website is aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And click Support Us. I do believe there are dogs that are dangerous. Is it the dog's fault the dog is dangerous or vicious? He or she wasn't born vicious because all dogs are good dogs. It's always the owner who made the dog into a bad dog or a vicious dog. But what's the definition of vicious anyway? Vicious might have its own legal definition. And we'll ask our dog bite legal expert Ken Phillips about that as well. But it seems to me that the definition of vicious or dangerous is purely subjective. Right? I mean, what I think is a vicious dog might be different than what you think is a vicious dog and different than the person who was attacked by a dog when she was a child thinks is a vicious dog. In addition, maybe that dog's only dangerous in a given situation or environment or around certain kinds of people. We had a wonderful dog, Paco. Paco didn't like people who spoke the Spanish language. Paco was not a dangerous dog. Paco was not a racist dog. But we just made sure that the Spanish language was not spoken around Paco. And I'm just assuming Paco was abused by a person who spoke Spanish. And that's the point. If you know a dog is not comfortable in a given situation or environment and or you do not approve of the dog's behavior in a given environment or around certain people or other dogs, you might have to make some adjustments in your lifestyle to keep your dog and your family and everyone around you safe and happy. It's not hard, maybe a little inconvenient, but so what? That's life, and that's what you do. So, we're talking about the definition of a dangerous dog. Purely subjective. And you know, even shelters have their own definition of a dangerous dog. A lot of shelters have what's called temperament testing to determine if dogs are dangerous or vicious in certain situations. And other shelters don't use any sort of method of testing or evaluation. They might deem a dog vicious by the dog's bite history or whatever random, indiscriminate means they choose. And not all shelter employees are experienced with dog behavior. And you might just be dealing with a scared dog who was recently picked up off the streets and who was lost from his home. And that dog might very well cower in the corner or growl at anyone who enters his kennel. Or maybe the dog was in an abusive situation and, again, might not want to trust or be kind to you or any human initially. Are these vicious dogs? No, they're scared. And they're certainly not going to do well on any temperament test or any sort of evaluation given by a complete stranger. My own dogs, if lost for me and picked up and thrown into a loud, scary shelter cage, would likely fail any tests and might very well be deemed vicious or dangerous. And realistically, who's going to want to adopt a dog who is labeled vicious anyway? Yeah, the dog is probably not vicious by your standards, but you're not going to want to adopt that dog. And you certainly have to question the motives of the adopter who wants to adopt a dog labeled as vicious. What's he going to do with that dog? Use him as a fighting dog? Sell him to a research lab? I don't know. But the thing is, for the most part, from my experience, Shelters don't adopt out dogs that they think are truly vicious. And it boils down to what your definition of vicious is. I know there are exceptions, okay? 
but I don't see shelters adopting out dogs that they think will turn around and hurt other people or animals. Now, having said that, there have been a few instances I'm aware of where dogs should not have been released to the public at the time they were. I'm not saying these dogs were vicious. What I'm saying is more training or socialization or rehabilitation should have been offered to that dog and then reassessed, establishing this dog is okay to be adopted out to a given person or family. And by the way, this is an entirely different topic we can talk about another time, but earlier in the show, the term no-kill shelter was mentioned. And you might know this already, but just because a shelter claims they are no-kill doesn't mean they never kill a dog. I know it might sound like a misleading term if a shelter describes itself as a no-kill shelter and they kill a dog, but some shelters might say they are no-kill, and that usually means they strive for that, okay? I mean, they might be situations where they do kill a dog. Like if a dog is suffering and essentially untreatable, like a dog was hit by a car and has internal bleeding and broken bones and barely breathing, of course, any humane shelter would euthanize that dog. Now, that's the real definition of euthanasia, by the way, taking an individual out of its misery. Now, I will tell you that what often happens in these no-kill shelter settings, since they strive not to kill animals unless they have to, unfortunately, you get some dogs and cats there in that shelter for a very long time, and they can develop extreme kennel stress and anxiety from their lengthy stays. Just like any individual cooped up in a small place with little stimulation for a long time will go a little stir-crazy. Again, this doesn't make the dog a dangerous dog. So what's the bottom line? Our country still has millions of homeless dogs and cats that are in need of a loving forever home. We are still killing millions of unwanted animals in our shelters every year. Don't buy a dog from a breeder, okay? If you're wanting to add a dog or cat to your family, consider visiting your local shelter. Check out the animals just waiting there to be a part of your family. And if you end up adopting from a shelter, in all likelihood, you'll be saving a life. And that's a good thing. And dogs bite. And let's not conflate a dog that bites with a vicious or dangerous dog. My parents' little 12-pound rescued Maltese chiclet would bite certain individuals who would approach my mother. Is chiclet a vicious dog? No. Little fluffy white chiclet is not a vicious dog and would never be labeled vicious. But if my mother had a pit bull and that same person approached her and the pit bull was trying to protect my mother, that's a different story. That dog's vicious. And we all know why this is the case. Number one, larger dogs can do more damage when they bite than smaller dogs, just on the basis of their size of their mouth and teeth. And number two, pit bulls have a bad rap. And that's because many people are misinformed about pit bulls. And that's another good topic to bring up with Ken. Given the same situation and under the same circumstances, why are certain dog breeds automatically deemed vicious and others are not? Two little dogs the size of a large rat have bitten the nose of one of our large dogs minding his own business. Who's the vicious one? Maybe no one. Dogs bite. A woman asked her veterinarian, is there any chance my dog will bite someone? The veterinarian's response was, does it have teeth? 
Thanks for tuning in to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. 